Section two of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Section two. Jim Huntington, gazing out of Walter Levin's western windows, got a sketchy view of some hundreds of unhappy roofs. Loft buildings of the cheaper sort were plenty. So, too, were window-sills that seemed to sag under the untidy weight of mattresses and bedclothes. It hurt him, all that unpicturesque squalor, hurt him chiefly by the sense of vicarious confinement. His was a roving temper, with little or no aesthetic sense. He disliked having, in spite of himself, to pronounce on either beauty or ugliness. The open precisely suited him. A picture-gallery was scarcely more to his taste than a slum. He liked personal activity, something that he could do and do on his own. He hated having either to praise or blame the works of man. Fortunately for him, the planet was still able to provide him with a few unravished stretches. Yet the young giant had a conscience, and his conscience had brought him to Walter Levin's door. Walter Levin obviously cared as much for the careful hand of man as young Jim for the careless hand of God. Not an object in his sitting-room, but was wrinkled with history, and the vast gestures of nature could have had nothing to do with the meticulous etching of his face. All the same, Walter Levin was the only one of the company which, a week before, had gathered in Miss Wheaton's house, to whom Jim Huntington felt he could go. The two men had barely met before that day, but Jim Huntington, looking for someone he could talk to, had selected Levin. "'What is it?' asked the older man at last. Huntington turned from his staring. He couldn't for the life of him see what it was, only something had to be discussed with somebody before he could get off. "'I don't know any of those people,' he began. "'I've never seen Miss Wheaton often. "'I don't even know what I was doing there with the rest of you "'except that she knew my mother once. "'I used to see her a lot when I was a kid, "'but, Lord, that's long ago. "'Only, well, it amounts to this. "'I can't cut my stick without making sure. "'I've at least spoken to you before, "'and, by George, I don't believe I've even spoken to most of the others.' "'Is it all right for me to go ahead?' "'Go ahead?' "'Yes. What is all this extraordinary idea of her staking us, anyhow? "'As man to man, have I got a right to this windfall? "'Or is she crazy and is something going to happen? "'The lawyer says not, but I don't know anything about lawyers.' "'I think she explained herself sufficiently to us all that afternoon.' There was a discernible bitterness in Levin's tone. "'I don't call that explaining. I never took anything from a woman before. I don't know if it's right. I've got to ask some one of the bunch. And the rest were no good. You've got to tell me.' "'I can tell you nothing whatever.' "'Well, I can't see her. I've tried. She's always out or engaged. Besides, it's awfully uncomfortable.' I've taken the money, of course, but I can't start off without knowing. 
I'd be in a hell of a hole if I got ten thousand miles away and then had to refund. Besides, why should she give me anything? You will have to answer that yourself. Do you believe, the young man twisted uncomfortably on his sofa, that any of those other people are in my queer position, not knowing any more than a dumb animal why? If I thought that I'd finish up my business and start. I am quite in the dark, quite in the dark. Levin fiddled with a bit of enamel, but I honestly think you may take it from me as an old friend of Cordelia Wheaton's that you're safe. You may go and be happy in your own peculiar way without worrying. That is if he stopped. Miss Wheaton's beneficiaries were of many stripes and colors. They were to work their luck into a score of different patterns. Some of them were to know each other well, others never to meet again. Only one decision would they all, as by a single gesture, make. Not one of them would ever tell or ask another how much. Imprisoned together in her charity, each would, to the end, have that little private cell to flee to. "'Oh, I can be happy,' Huntington hastened to say, "'if it's all right.' "'I don't like to take any responsibility in the matter,' the older man answered. "'But I see no reason why you should hesitate. "'You are lucky, I think, to know what you want to do with your windfall.' "'Jim Huntington grinned happily. "'Don't you?' "'No, I don't.' "'There was again bitterness in Levin's tone.' but somehow all the bitterness seemed vicarious, as if he were complaining for a friend. "'Oh, it's easy enough to spend money. I dare say, but it has come rather late to me. I'm used to my life. You can always buy this sort of thing.' By way of indication, the young giant's fist nearly knocked over a piece of majolica. "'Yes, I can always do that.' Levin seemed to be waiting for his guest to go. "'Well, so long.' Huntingdon crossed to the door. There he turned. "'I suppose I'd feel better about it if I knew what she was going to do. Won't she be everlastingly sorry some day?' "'You attribute to me a familiarity with Miss Wheaton's mind that I do not possess. Jim Huntingdon never reacted to stiffness. He merely got away from it as quickly as possible. So he turned the knob of the door.' "'Impertinence is not my habit,' he assured Levin gravely. "'Only I wish to heaven somebody knew something. "'But as there doesn't seem to be anything I can do, "'I'll take my passage today. "'I'd have been a lot happier, though, "'if someone could have assured me that that poor old lady was happy.' "'Walter Levin smiled at his departing guest. "'You may take it from me that she thinks she's happy. "'I give you my word on that.' "'Good luck to you. I suppose you have an address?' "'Oh, yes, it'll probably be some bank in Shanghai. Would you like it?' "'Yes.' "'I'll send it to you. Goodbye.' And his hosts heard him descend the stairs with a comfortable Brogdignagian stride. Left to himself, Levin sank back into a warm and rickety chair. The bitterness that young Huntington had excited in his breast now took control there, and his fine, hard, weary features showed his mood. 
for many reasons he had hated answering the young adventurer's questions but he paid huntington the compliment of believing him a rare case he did not in his mind's eye see any of the others looking askance at their luck their palms would be greedy while their lips were scornful he was rather glad that he had asked for huntington's address shanghai to his europe-moulded mind sounded fantastic still undoubtedly there was a bank there and he could even fancy huntington fresh from all the places that made maps absurd asking an impassive chinaman for letters he respected huntingdon for his scruples because they were akin to his own he had lulled the other scruples while he let his own have full play because he felt with such passion as was left to him that he alone had a right to them it was late in the day for walter levin to be jealous and his jealousy was of an odd and faded kind it consisted only in wishing to be alone and worrying about cordelia wheaton he did not pretend even in this twilight of age that might well make their two landscapes so similar to understand her but he liked to think that he alone of them all could see danger ahead of the woman he had loved other people knowing what he did might think her a fool but none of them save him would regret her folly love was past but he remembered it as he remembered the italy of his ardent wanderings rome was spoiled now people told him cordelia wheaton had certainly become a figure of little charm yet he wouldn't for very pride go back on his past in self-respect he must maintain that the only emotions he had ever had had been justified italy had been a marvel cordelia had been slim and sweet and noble both had been reft from him and now he had no resource but to believe that in his day he had loved all too wisely life had been a beast to him but he would lie to life brazenly on his very deathbed pretending that what he had had was something crude possession could hardly have bettered he could see life go out of the door a disappointed shrew that would precisely suit him and the narrow range of his shrunk emotions walter levin had a sense of humour he kept it by him like some very ugly very convenient object if you can imagine a connoisseur finding a patent rocker comfortable and having the rare audacity to admit it you can guess walter levin's attitude to his sense of humour he sat in his rocker and looked at his masterpieces at first it had been only another way of showing deliberate disrespect to life but eventually he had come to like his rocker it was because he could see how absurd was cordelia wheaton's present theory of existence that he worried about her he had all those last years suspected that cordelia was making a mystical fool of herself but she had said little to him on the rare occasions when he had seen her only at that last dinner she had shared with him had she let him have it straight as straight as one could let you have any dim nonsense of the sort he didn't know where she had got it she didn't tell him but of course 
there were always futile sophistications ready to the hand of the rich. There was religion in her impoverishing herself, but it was a religion with no aesthetic value. One of those queer things out of the East, bound up with charlatans and flatulent illiteracy, a state of mind that rejected the concrete, that would, if it consented to look at it, have deplored the Renaissance. Cordelia was by way of denying her body, and the humanist in him would have preferred cosmetics and masseuses. Life, wishing to make him squirm in his patent rocker, had shown him the woman he had loved turned. What was the ridiculous thing? Buddhist. They did that sort of thing, he knew, in Boston, but they did it temporarily. They didn't burn their boats. It didn't go beyond vegetarianism and housing impostors and turbans. He could have stood it as a fad. But Cordelia had already disposed of her fortune. She was going to India, or Tibet, or Ceylon, or some such place, to finish her days contemplating the infinite. At least, he supposed it was the infinite. He had refused to listen to the jargon. Cordelia was sweet, was dignified, was reticent about it, but that was what it amounted to. She would grow fatter and fatter until she couldn't move, until she was just a mystic stare out of a heap of flesh. And all the time, if she could only have seen it that way, there was Rome, a great hospital equipped to receive any kind of case, even hers. That was all he knew, and he knew more than anyone else. He was too sore to think of it as a brave gesture on her part, and he knew well that giving your life for a cause does not prove the worth of the cause. Cordelia would perish for something whose sole sense was to make an article in an encyclopedia, and he, enriched, must watch her perish, the woman who had been slim, sweet, and noble, and whom he had never asked to marry him for reasons she was perfectly aware of. Walter Levin believed nothing, but he could have borne a bigotry that had been responsible for Fra Angelico. When he came to think of it, the absence of bigotry was the most disgusting thing about Cordelia's revelation. His knowledge of her religion was sketchy, but his sense of it had become vivid, he saw it as something too vast and vaporous to be quite decent. It was a great mist reeking. In it moved gods of prehistoric countenance, mopping and mowing with mile-wide grins. His own agnosticism had at least the cleanness of the void. Her revelation had nothing to say to humanity. It denied all passion, even the purest, all codes, even the noblest. There were in it none of those choices that justify the soul. Life, any life, snake or man, it held indecent a thing to be got rid of. Their saints gazed at their own navels and were dumb. Ugh! No wonder he had been unhappy when he left her house on that momentous evening. All Cordelia's life had been a tacit refusal of his unspoken offer of himself, but he had never felt really jilted until now, and it was too late to glorify another woman, too late even to fling himself ironically into ignoble adventures. 
His blood was thin, his ardors ran low. He wanted nothing, not even disgust, to shock him back into his illusions. Only that morning he had signed a new lease for his two inconvenient rooms. He had walked past his tailor's three times before deciding to go in and order a suit he sorely needed. For two days he had been deliberating over having a telephone installed. He thought he might run to that, but he hesitated, in spite of himself, to make so lavish a gesture. Perhaps Huntingdon's visit had tinged the air with venturesomeness. At all events, half an hour after Huntingdon had left him, Levin got up, put on his overcoat, and started out for the office of the telephone company. At the same time he resolved inwardly to buy another book of meal tickets at his dreary boarding-house. No one can say what Walter Levin feared, or why, but he crept further into his familiar frugality as if menaced by deadly guns. End of Section 2